Welcome to the next episode of Splitting Cases with Pointy and the Moose. And it's our first episode with a special guest, which is the general point of Splitting Cases, that we provide the case, the guest provides the topic, and today we have a little bit of a spread out here as well. We've got some food. Our guest is a little hungover from a big night, so it should be a good conversation. Our first guest is Schnitzel. I met Schnitzel, he was hanging around my cousin for a long time before I realised they were going out, and now they're married, and he's a big part of the family, so I thought he'd be good to get on to talk about his chosen topic today. How are you doing, Pointy? I am well, thank you. How do you know Schnitzel? I've known Schnitzel for a number of years now, I guess, and just remember him from uh, many drinks at Moose's place. Okay, so welcome to Splitting Cases. What is your chosen topic for today? Uh, Well, my chosen topic for today is Bruce Springsteen. That I'm on a massive Bruce Springsteen kick at the moment. Speak about what you're passionate about. That's it. So you've chosen it because you're on a massive Bruce Springsteen kick, but tell me a bit about why you love Springsteen. It's really hard to point out. Uh, my love for Springsteen started, I had listened to a couple of his records and that kind of thing, and then ended up through very fortuitous circumstances with tickets to his gig in Sydney last year. And I went. And I didn't know a great deal. Like I said, I knew a few, you know, a few of his songs and had listened to a few records. But it was the most mind-blowing gig I've ever been to. So you've only really been into him for about a year since that gigish time. Oh, most definitely, yeah. I think it was in March of last year. Hey, Pointy, you went to that gig as well, didn't you? I did. But before we get to that, that's very interesting that you say you only just got into him because one of my questions was going to be was the boss something that you grew up listening to and now have delved back into so that's not the case no it's not actually it's the exact opposite i've grown up my uh my dad has an ongoing kind of behavior joke whatever you want to call it of hating anything that's kind of popular i still don't really know whether he's serious or not when he says these things but i grew up with the idea that the boss was really overrated and terrible which obviously when i bothered to listen to him myself i found was not true it's one of those things where you do kind of take on the beliefs of those more musically educated than you, like family beliefs and stuff. And let's face it, Springsteen's not a teenage sound. No, no, definitely not. Well, maybe if you're a teenager in the early 80s, but I don't know. Courtney Cox was a teenager. She liked him. Yeah, or maybe if you're from Jersey. Not that I'm comparing you to Courtney Cox in any sense of the... They both have lovely hair. (laughs) We do. It wouldn't be the first time I've been compared to Courtney Cox. You know, we're both very attractive young people. is no stranger to the Hunter region where we live and he's come up here twice in two years and you saw him a second time as well. I did, yes. Um, I didn't see him in the Hunter Valley though. I went to Sydney on both occasions. The main reason I went to Sydney the second time was because I was going with my father-in-law and there was no way he was going to risk sitting in the rain or dealing with a bunch of drunk people. So we went to Sydney. Going to the, the, my first Springsteen show last year, I spent the first half a dozen songs um, just kind of in absolute a state of shock and awe. I had no idea what was going on and I was just blown away by the atmosphere and the, you know, anyone that's seen Springsteen, you've seen him pointy, so you know the kind of atmosphere that's creating the communal kind of feel, the hoedown type thing that's going on. Was that your yeah. experience? Yeah, it's definitely a bit of a party and you can tell that the people that are there are converts and they're there to you know worship at that altar but yeah it's a great vibe because it's not often that you get to go to a massive stadium show where everybody is that into it 
I mean, a lot of the time, especially for acts of that age, it's a bit of a nostalgia-type event, and that was definitely not the case at the gig I went to. It seemed everyone was still up-to-date with the more recent releases. The tour was for support of Wrecking Ball, so very sort of leaned-off tracks from that album. So, yeah, yeah, it was a great show. Yeah, I think Springsteen's quite interesting. It's you're touching on that he's you know a bit a bit older. He's 60, 60 fucking five, as he was saying at the gig the other day. Um, it's really really interesting that he had like he had a mega purple patch, obviously, kind of you know the Born to Run and Darkness on the Edge of Town, the River. So throughout the seventies and into the eighties with Born in the USA, um, but then kind of in the nineties he had this real down period where I think I've read an interview where he says that he started making happy records and no one wanted to hear them. So yeah, he kind of he released. I think there was two in the early '90s that weren't big commercial successes. You know, critically reasonably well received, but didn't go anywhere commercially. And he kind of pulled out of the music world for a little while. I think the '90s were a really barren time for anyone who was huge in the '70s and '80s. I mean, that, that not everyone, but it's an overarching rule that a lot of people kind of felt the '90s were their their bad period. I, I think part of that was the you know successive grunge and alternative rock. There was a yeah. lot of bands and arts from around that time that became frowned upon for being dinosaurs. I mean, there were a few that escaped unscathed, like Neil Young. Yeah. But for the most part, there was a yeah a lot of I don't know rewriting history and. So as we mentioned before, neither of us are hugely into Springsteen. I'm aware of all the greatest hits and most of the key albums. So how would you give an introduction to Springsteen? for people that haven't really listened to him. Well, I mean, I think Springsteen is one of those artists that most people are going to know the greatest hits. Yeah. Like, I mean, everyone's heard Born to Run, everyone's heard Thunder Road, and, you know, there's, cer- there's certain touchstones, Hungry Heart, Dancing in the Dark, you know, Courtney Cox again. If you wanted an introductory listen, I would actually go back way back to his first album, which I think is really fantastic. It's which certainly, is? It's certainly not an underrated. It's called Greetings from Asbury Park, New Jersey. And it was really quite interesting. He got signed by a record label to be the next Bob Dylan. And record labels were snapping up anyone that had a, an acoustic guitar and kind of played anything that was, I guess, a bit folky. And Springsteen got himself a record contract by... Yeah, impersonating that, and then released a record that was absolutely nothing like it. Um, but it's it's absolutely fantastic. I mean, he still plays Spirit in the Night, which is the closer off that album, which is just a, an amazing song and brilliant on the record and comes out even more amazing live. But Lost in the Flood is another fantastic song, which kind of foreshadows where he's going in terms of... It kind of deals with um, people coming back from war and Vietnam and that kind of thing, and the the difficulty people have adjusting to that kind of thing so in a way that album kind of forecasts where he's going and what he was going to be doing it's still very young and there's a lot of improvement that he made a lot of improvements he made over time but that's a really good a really good starting point yeah well i i guess that theme was revisited pretty heavily on born in the usa as far as i know that's pretty much what the song's about yeah most definitely and i mean you know it's the pop culture snippet of history that Reagan grabbed it and I love that story thought it was fantastic pro USA yeah and the kids of today the kids of today find inspiration in the songs of young (laughs) men like Bruce Springsteen um not in the way he thought though not in the way he thought and I mean yeah I mean you'd be hard pressed to find a more anti not anti-American but anti-authoritarian it was certainly not flag waving government supporting it was pretty angry I guess that's kind of similar to how London Calling has been being used in similar sort of events. But interestingly enough, Springsteen also played London Calling, at, plays it regularly at his gigs in the UK. Oh, the gigs in Australia. 
I heard that he picked a cover in each city from an Australian band. Did you guys get that? We absolutely did. We had... Uh, he opened with Friday on My Mind. Um, cool. Which is fantastic. And we were actually running just a bit late. So we were running through the halls of All Phones <laughs> Arena trying to find our door. And it was like door 48 or whatever the hell was it was. Was Uncle Graham running? Uh, no, Uncle Graham was not running. Um, I, I, imagine- I was kind of running and I had a very stressed out Mrs. Schnitzel. Hitting me and hurry, telling me to hurry up and find the door. So go in. Um, Sorry, not not that I'm saying Uncle Graham can't run because he runs very well. He's <laughs> he's just very, very calm. He's very physical, but yeah, he was very calm. I can't imagine him going. We gotta get there. No, I he, imagine he's just like we'll get there. He was very calm. He was walking quickly, but he, he was very very calm. Yeah, um, it was a brisk walk. It was a brisk walk. Yes, very brisk. Um, but yeah, so as we're walking in, we hear. Um, you know, hello Sydney, and everyone screams. Then he, um, you know, launches into Friday on my mind, which is fantastic. It's, yeah, just a great song. The Bowie version of that is also very, very good. It is very good. Love it. Love, I love all those Bowie covers actually from that album. It's fantastic. What album was Hungry Heart off? Hungry Heart was on Born in the USA. Did you notice that around that time, there's lots of songs about being hungry, like Hungry Heart, Hungry Eyes, Hungry Like the Wolf. I mean, three is not a lot, but I certainly can't think of a lot of. Hungry songs from then or uh, before then. There were lean times. Yeah. Lean times. <laughs> Lots of belt tightening. Everyone was really hungry. Everyone was very, very hungry, particularly the boss, you know. And eyes. And eyes, yeah. And hearts. I also think hungry eyes is like a terrifying vision. I mean, I get what he means, but I just imagine eyes with teeth. You're taking it a little bit more literally. I don't know. Hungry like the wolf makes sense. I get that wolves are hungry, or they can be. And Hungry Heart, I get that he's longing for love, but Hungry Eyes is just a little more terrifying. Like, it's a little bit creepy. It is concerning. Now that's all I'm it's, thinking it's, about. It's, 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 you know, it's, a, it's an ongoing problem. And some of the world's greatest art has been exploring that very problem. So Springsteen, in my mind, is very much an American sort of sound and phenomenon. What do you get out of it that you think relates to you? How do I reconcile that with being a, a true red-blooded Australian? True blue, Aussie. True blue. Well, Blue ribbon, blue collar. Look, I, I completely agree. There, it, there's such a strong American flavour. I mean, that doesn't... I mean, the obvious example, of course, is, you know, born in the USA. But. Also, I feel like American flavour would be barbecue. Like, if you had to pick an overall American flavour, it would be a barbecue. I think there is smoky American barbecue sauce. Mm, maybe that's what I'm thinking of. Possibly. It's delicious. That'd be good. They'd go good with your hungry eyes. <laughs> I feel like that would just have 100% more sugar. <laughs> I think so, yeah. And they don't endorse pouring barbecue sauce in your eyes, but get on with it. This podcast does not endorse pouring barbecue <laughs> sauce into your eyes, particularly what? not smoky barbecue. <laughs> There's a very American flavour, but I think, you know, the music itself is so just so easily accessible. I mean, who can't relate? I mean, the songs that he's writing, you know, they're, you know, his love songs, are, anyone can relate to that, and the ideas of, you know trying to break out of your hometown or you know um the universal themes that's they're the words i'm looking for universal themes that he's painting them through you know he's telling the story through his lens which is growing up in new jersey and you know having a, a dad who was out of work and then working in a factory and you know struggled with work and not a you know not a well-off family so he's writing from that kind of lens but i mean it's all stuff that anyone can relate to really born in the usa i mean even though that is you know in the very title, I and mean, he's talking about the United States. I mean, the idea of 
not feeling accepted or being rejected or let down by your government. That's, again, I'll say some of the world's, you know, a lot of the world's greatest art is about that very problem. Not that I'm comparing Springsteen to Cold Chisel, but it's very much, it's very much like our Cold Chisel. It's working class voice. It's, it's very much from that point of view. And so it associates with a certain lot of people and associates with everyone. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I think I, I've heard the term heartland rock used before, mm. which I don't particularly like as a term, but it fits. Something very rural, I guess. You know, suburban. I would say suburban probably more than, than rural. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I guess that's the point of a, a lot of art is that you're not so you're telling a story that's about one thing, but it's to shine light on a a broader story. Yeah, that's that's absolutely right. Yeah. What's the album that was re-released a couple of years ago in that big notebook form? Darkness was it? Darkness. Darkness it on the edge of town. Yes. Uh, yeah, that was the album with the big notebook re-release, right? It, yes, it was. I believe it was. Yes, I don't have that re-release. No, um, but that turned up at work. Um, years ago when it came out. What's the story with that in terms of he recorded like a whole other album and chucked it out and recorded it again? Okay, Darkness on the Edge of Town, there's a fantastic documentary yeah. um, about it called The Promise, The Making of the Darkness on the Edge of Town. He was going through a whole lot of legal troubles after Born to Run. Mm. Um, he was stupidly commercially successful after Born to Run. It just it blew up. But the way, I mean, it was a common story for recording artists back then, the way the contracts were drawn up and the things they signed, these kids... They made no money at all. Like all the money went to the record company, it went to the manager, it went to... I mean, he said he was the poorest pop star in the world. Um, so between Born to Run and Darkness on the Edge of Town, he kind of made this decision that he was going to take control of that. And there was a lengthy legal battle, like at least a year, I think it was, which effectively kept him out of the studio. Um, yeah. So the E Street man pretty much came and started living at his house and was just... They just played for a year and they played that many songs. He had notebooks full of lyrics and alternate lyrics and all that kind of thing. And many, many, many of those songs ended up on the river. Yeah. Because um, they were just outstanding songs. I mean, in the documentary you can see he and Steve Van Zandt playing Sherry Darling, which is just it's an awesome song off the river. It's just a great rock and roll tune. And you hear them playing it. And he just he ditched it. Didn't fit on the album, so he threw it away. Hmm. Um, and there's a lot of talk on that in that doco about you know the kind of restraint and dedication it takes to write a song in the first place, and then write one that's that good, and then toss it aside because it doesn't fit overall what you're doing, or yeah. you know you're not finished, so you'll just leave it. First, remember listening to that second disc and that unreleased album part of it and re remembering I really like that equally as much if not more as the actual album it kind of implies he's incredibly prolific oh he's ridiculous and you see as again I go back to that docker and you see him flipping through A4 notebooks that are just full they're just absolutely full of lyrics and you know notes on you know uh, chord progressions and all that kind of thing he just he just wrote and wrote and wrote and wrote and wrote and versions that he plays live of songs are slightly different sometimes to what's on the record because he just he changes things and he goes to alternate verses and that kind of thing. That's well, a good musician. That kind of shows he's got a certain amount of musicianship there. Oh, that's that's absolutely absolutely it. Um, he's a master of his craft and that whole legal battle was about him wanting to take control of his you know his creative future and what he was going to be doing and he um, you know the record company wanted him to go in and make Born to Run Part 2 and hmm. instead he went in he wanted to get away from that and he made what's a much 
darker, in a lot of ways, I think more consistent album. I think Darkness on the Edge of Town, I think is described as, you know, the Springsteen fans Springsteen album. Well, that um, reminds me of Ryan Adams in general after the success of Gold. He uh, took a long time and wanted to release the Now Love Is Hell record and they his record company being they uh, just said no, like that's too dark that's going to confuse fans, that's not in your demographic, you know, you've got to create something more upbeat and so he went and recorded the tongue-in-cheek rock and roll. Then Love Is Hell was released as two EPs because they wouldn't put it out and then finally the success of Love Is Hell but they put it out as one album but it was a painful process, Jesus. I think that's probably a circumstance a lot of bands have found themselves in because I, I guess similar to Ryan Adams, Wilco had that same experience yeah. with Yankee Hotel Foxtrot. Yeah. They recorded it, the you know record label wasn't keen on it, they ended up releasing it on the internet and it became you know, pretty much a huge success based off that. So, you know, I don't think the label execs are the ones that should be making some of these calls. No, I think bands need to be trusted with their own material occasionally, and that that's what happens with a lot of people going independent and releasing their own stuff now. Obviously, once you've got a certain fan base already there, but... It's, it's not a unique set of circumstances that he found himself in. You know, countless bands have ended up in a situation where they've released a record that they didn't want to or they've taken a direction that they didn't want to for whatever reason coming from the record company and he was fortunate enough that he decided to and successfully fought against that what about nebraska when did that record come out now my order's a little bit fuzzy here i'm fairly sure nebraska came out after darkness but before the river um yes after darkness but before the river and that was a bunch of songs that he had and i believe the, the tracks that are actually on nebraska are the demos that he played to the E Street Band um, and was going to take it and record it with them and then decided to release it as, as a kind of a solo acoustic record instead. Yeah, well, that's probably one of the only other albums apart from Born to Run, Born in the USA and the, the most recent records that I've actually spent a bit of time with. And yeah, that's my understanding as well. You know, recorded the demos. They went to track the album with the band, got, I don't know at what point, but they did start recording and then eventually realised that, hang on, what we've got here is already perfect the way it is so let's just release it like that and it's kind of become a bit of a indie rock legacy that you know you can just release the demo and hope for the best yeah that's right it was it, i mean it's really weird in between it shoehorned in between you know darkness on the edge of town and the river is this out of almost sounds out of place this acoustic kind of record that he just did in his own but it's, it's brilliant not meaning to pull this in-depth discussion into shallow waters but he's looking good for his age you say he's 65. I would like to look like that at 65. He looks damn good for 65. Oh. I, I left that gig, and I've kind of been on the cusp of going to the gym and doing something. Well, I was going to the gym, but then I broke my arm. So then, ah. uh, You that, wanted to buy a vest, didn't you? I did, I did. And I have a vest, and I tried to wear it to work the next day, and Mr. Schnitzel wanted no part of that. Well-aging Springsteen is inspiring vest purchases all around the world. That's right, he is. And so he should. <laughs> so he should. The man is a, a touchstone in terms of culture both in fashion and in music. I don't know about fashion, but he certainly probably inspired a lot of blue jeans from that bum shot on the record. Everyone's like, right, I'm going to look like that. Well, that's my understanding of what 1984 was like in America. Just, just, just bums in blue jeans. Just bums in blue jeans and white shirts <laughs> and Courtney Cox. <laughs> Lots of Courtney Cox dancing. Well, that is an interesting point. Maybe Springsteen's a vampire. He does look pretty good. 
That's a very, very confronting question and one that I think needs to be answered. It's no, because vampires look like they always did. Springsteen has just aged well. He looks different, but he looks good. Like Moz, like Morrissey. Like- I, maybe he was bit 10 years ago. <laughs> maybe, yeah. So now he's stuck. He's, you know, he's 65, but he's actually 55. Yeah. yeah. Maybe that's it. And Moz is the same. But do you notice that all of Moz's concert photos use old press photos? Do they? Yeah. yeah. He doesn't put any new photos of himself up anymore. Although... He- just announced new album. I know, I heard. Yeah, that's yeah. so damn exciting. That is going to be cool. Because that's that's another artist that, you know, after seeing Springsteen last year, I said, I don't care how much I have to pay. Every time he's here, I will go again. I will not miss an opportunity to see him. That's Moz, me with Ryan Adams. Moz is the same. I will never miss an opportunity to see Moz. After seeing him that one time, it blew me away, you know. Well, I'm so glad that uh, Moose and I went to both shows that Moz tour oh, and yeah. it was definitely worth it Cause they I'm were very su- jealous they were such significantly different experiences one was was more of a seated kind of affair and one was just like an all, all standing full on smaller theatre affair but we were actually talking about that the other week I think Pointy and I how you guys turned up and we met our friend Rico from Darwin who was down for the shows as well because he's a huge Smiths fan and then we fell asleep in the so, back of the car, and I felt terrible because yeah, you were driving. We drive- both felt awful. We still feel bad. Like you were driving three people just right. dead I, to the world. Ever and everyone would just like. <laughs> That's fine. That's all right. I had Exile on Main Street, which I just purchased. It seems topical to point out, since we saw Nine Inch Nails and Queens of the Stone Age last night, that there's another alternative rock superstar oh, the in the current version of the E Street Band. Uh, who, who's that? Schnitzel. That is the wonderful Tom Morello has been strutting around on stage with his many guitars, Arm the Homeless, and all the wonderful, wonderful things. Wearing the Indigenous Australian flag, too, which is really cool when we saw him in Sydney. Yeah, no, he's, uh, he's been in the East Street Band, I think for something like two years or something, he's been playing and he was touring and he appeared um, on the most recent album, High Hopes, officially. So that's his first album that he's been on as part of the East Street Band, although I don't think he's officially part of the East Street Band, I'm not sure. Yeah, he's he's been playing. He's been another guitar. I think he was filling in for Steve Van Zant originally um, when he was off filming. I think he was filming Lilyhammer. He's in a billion movies and TV shows, but he was filling in for Steve Van Zant, and now he's just there along with you know Nils and little Stephen and Bruce. There's four guitarists, and I guess every band member having their showcase is probably why the sets go for three hours. That's something that's always struck me too. Is that you're going to see? It, you know, it says on the ticket Bruce Springsteen and the E Street Band, and it's, like, it's really that he's a band leader. You know, I mean, he's writing lyrics and writes a lot of the music himself, but he's leading a band. It's not uncommon to hear him yell out key changes and stuff in the middle of songs where they're just extending it, just for the sake of it because it's fun <laughs> and everyone's into it. So. Once again, that comes back to great musicianship. They haven't just rehearsed the same set of songs that they can't change per night because that's what they know and that's what they know they're going to do. They're such great musicians that they can just jam and play and mix up the set and they know what they've got to do. Yeah, that's that's it. And you know, Tom Morello, I've read a couple of interviews with, interviews with him because everyone wants to talk to him because you know, he's kind of in the E Street band now. And people have been asking him what it's been like. And he said, when, before he went out on tour, you know, Bruce, he spoke to Bruce and Bruce asked, you know, would you come out and you play with us? And he was like, absolutely, that'd be fantastic. So Bruce gave him a list of like 40 or 50 songs to learn. Um, and that freaked Tom Morello. I was like, I can't learn this many songs. So he did, though, and he was prepared and ready. And then on the first night that he played, I think the third song, Bruce picked a sign out of the crowd that was some really obscure song, and they just started playing. And 
Tom just kind of had to figure it out on the way. So I think he's a lot more comfortable now. I mean, the band just, yeah, they pick signs randomly out of the crowd for, you know, songs off the first album that they very rarely play or the second album, which they play even less regularly. It's um, nice from a fan perspective, though, to request a song and get it played. Oh, uh, that's it, yeah. And no, it's, it's fantastic. They have that kind of interaction and... I, I know that in the, the Brisbane gig that he played not that long ago, um, and I mean, like, last week, I think, was his last show of this Australian leg of the tour. The show ended up going for four hours because uh, he got kind of, you know, halfway through and then he was just talking to the crowd, apparently, and saying, oh, he, you know, he couldn't decide if he wanted to play the second album, The Wild, The Innocent and The E Street Shuffle, from beginning to end or if he just wanted to take sign requests for the rest of the night or what he was going to do. He ended up playing the whole album. But yeah, the show went for four hours and he just you know made a snap decision on the night. Yes, we're going to play this and we're going to do that. That is really cool because ba- other bands like take six months in rehearsals to play a full album back to front that they haven't played in years. Well, that brings me on to an interesting question. So what are your thoughts on sites like setlist.fm? Are you one that wants to spoil the show or one that wants to know what you're in for? Oh, look. I am very guilty of going and looking up set lists for shows when I'm going to see a band. Um, part of me wishes I didn't do it because then I would be surprised. Um, right, but you know, part of me, of I just... Are. Yeah, all three of us are. Most definitely. Um, and part of me, yeah, I love doing it though. I absolutely love doing it. I got so excited before, you know, I was looking up... Before I saw him in Sydney this year, I looked up the set list for um, the two Melbourne shows and saw that he'd played um, Born in the USA in in entirety and uh, Born to Run in its entirety. And then I was sitting there for like, you know, doing the maths in my head, going, okay, if he's playing albums, then the next one's probably going to be Darkness. And if he plays Darkness, I'm going to lose it because that's my favourite album and I can't wait. Part of me was I could be surprised, but at the same time, I don't think I could have augmented the experience more by not knowing. I still, you know, he said they were going to play it. I still grabbed Mrs. Schnitzel and shook her, and my mother and father-in-law laughed at me, and, you know, it would have happened either way, so... It's kind of a nice bonding experience with your mother and father-in-law, isn't it, with Bruce Springsteen and their fandom of... It is, yeah, and, you know, I said that I wasn't that into Springsteen. I knew a few bits and pieces before I saw him last year. Those few bits and pieces had come from my father-in-law, who has been a fan of Springsteen for a very long time, Um, you know, kind of growing up with Springsteen and being the right age for that kind of thing. And he had, you know, given me a best of, and that's how I got started. Yeah, so it was really, really nice. And I mean, the hoedown kind of atmosphere and the party and, you know, it's, it's so communal, it's so family in there that it's just an arena full of people that are all there for the same reason, really. It's admiration, hate the cliche, you know, religious experience. But for an atheist, that's pretty damn close. I think one of, the, one of the interesting things about Springsteen is that, you know, I said before that he had kind of a big purple patch in the early days and, you know, released some of the biggest rock albums of all time in Born to Run and Darkness and The River and Nebraska and that kind of thing. And Born in the USA, obviously. But then in the early 90s, he, you know, made happy records and no one wanted to hear them. And then he kind of disappeared for a while. He had kind of a break and then came back in the 2000s and came back as just a massive force all of a sudden all over again. And, you know, The Rising was a huge record and came out... I mean, the title track, The Rising, you know, tells the story of a fireman running up the World Trade Centre on the 11th of September. 
So it's beautiful. I mean, Waiting on a Sunny Day as well is off that album, and it's like a touchstone of Springsteen gigs now. It's kind of... It's like Rosalita was in the in the you know back in the seventies and eighties. It was just everyone's waiting for that song to come on because you know he picks a kid out of the crowd and the kid gets up and sings and it's such a beautiful moment. If you could be picked to get up, uh, well, I know you're not a kid, but sing a song with Springsteen, what would it be? Jesus, that's a tough one. What song? You know what? I'm really I've got a bit of a raging heart on for the song No um, No Surrender at the moment, which is off born in the USA. Unbelievable. It's on the Live at Hyde Park DVD, and it has, I can't remember his name, but the singer from the Gaslight Anthem comes yeah. out and sings that with Springsteen. I've always thought they sound kind of Springsteen-esque. Yeah, no, fantastic. Don't say that, because I can't remember the guy's name, but he's not happy about comparisons. I read an article today. Really? Uh, the, le- the lead singer? Yeah. I mean, I'm sure he's happy about the comparisons in that sense, but I think the band's feeling a lot of pressure because they're being constantly referred to as Springsteen-esque yeah. and they kind of don't want to be pigeonholed into that kind of sound. Yeah. I, I don't care. Have you cared before when people have said, you know what, Moose really sounds like he's going on a Springsteen kind of trip at the moment and getting in the Springsteen sound? No, but they kind of do sound Springsteen-esque. No, they do. And listening to, like I said, on that Live at Hyde Park DVD, which is a fantastic, amazing concert movie, um, he comes out and sings, and it's be- it's beautiful. It sounds like Springsteen, but it's not Springsteen. And he just, I mean, he gets some of the best lines in that song as well, you know. Well, there are a couple of bands probably of the last 10 years that unashamedly wear their Springsteen heart on their sleeve. E.g.? Well, a- apart from the Gaslight Anthem, I think the Hold Steady very much yeah. had that Springsteen sound. I can hear that. And the Arcade Fire to some extent. Yeah, I can hear that. Not so much on Reflector, but yeah, I can hear that. Definitely on the suburbs. Yeah. So so there's a question. Is that a good thing? I mean, you know, Springsteen was incredibly relevant in the 70s and broke out and, you know, I mean, kind of a golden era for rock and roll in the 60s, 70s. Should people be imitating? I think everything happens in, in circles. Everything that's old becomes new and everything that's new becomes old. And there's nothing wrong with that. It's paying tribute to what inspired you. I mean, if you were doing something verbatim and not putting your own spin on it, then yeah, perhaps that's a problem. But there's nothing wrong with wearing your heart on your sleeve and paying tribute to to what you love. And to be honest, I don't think anybody is intentionally imitating anyone. When people, like our cousins, like, God, yeah, he's always ripping off Peter Gabriel. And it's like, no, he's not. He just happens to have a voice that sounds slightly similar. And with Gaslight Anthem, they probably grew up listening to Springsteen. No one intentionally goes, yeah, we're going to sound like this. That just comes out. The records you listened to growing up or the records you listen to now, even even if it's different to what you listened to growing up, inspire a certain style of singing, guitar playing. You grow up listening to something that informs your musical style later. I mean, it's not imitation. And sometimes people focus on the references rather than the sound. Mm. I think a classic example of that is Oasis and people saying how much they sound like the Beatles. They sound nothing like the fucking Beatles. No, uh, like I can kind of, I can kind of get the references for that, but at the same time, no, they don't. Yeah, yeah, fucking thank you. I'm glad that someone is going on record on this podcast and saying that because they don't. I mean, you can tell. Obviously, you listen to them and they're obvious Beatles fanboys, like. 80 80 percent of the, the world, same. but yeah, no. the sound they sound like you would not hear cigarettes and alcohol. Yeah, like the. I mean, that's T Rex. Exactly. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. You know, you know, Wonderwall, anything like that. I mean, even Don't Look Back in Anger, which is you know the opening of that is like a yeah, carbon imagine. copy of Imagine, but it is not 
the Beatles. It's not John Lennon. It's, it's Oasis. Exactly what I'm saying, though. You can hear references, you can hear influences, but you're not actually setting out to sound like anyone. And anyone who is not a Beatles cover band that says, yeah, we're going to sound like the Beatles is probably not going to get very far. You know, you're just going to sound like you. And maybe you're influenced by that shit. That's absolutely right. I mean, I think influences are only a good thing. You know? Yeah. I mean, Springsteen had influences. Yeah. Probably had influences. Exactly. I mean, you look at rock music is generally pretty young. You know, if you take rock music as kind of, as we know it today, kind of began in the 50s, 60s and around like Elvis and John Lee Hooker and all that kind of thing and grew out of that into what it is today. It is so young as an art form. It's like, oh, no one ever sounded like Bruce Springsteen before. Bruce Springsteen had his influences, but there wasn't enough, it wasn't as much as there is now to draw on his influence. Well, and there's more to compare to now because yeah. you've now got... 60 years worth of references as opposed to, 20, to a band in the 60s having 10 years worth of, oh, well, this sounds like Chuck Berry or this yeah. sounds like Little Richard. Go back to the early 60s when The Who were breaking and two of the biggest bands in the UK were The Who and The Kinks. And if you listen to Can't Explain, it's a Kinks riff. It's, it's exactly that. And Townsend says that. And he's like, that was my take on a King's Riff. That's what I could do. And they were two of the biggest bands in the UK at the time, and they're two of the biggest bands in rock history, and for that moment, they sounded exactly the same. Yet everyone cites them as original because they had a very shallow pool of things to draw off. That's exactly right. And I think, you know, we're talking about influences and that kind of thing. I think influences should always sign through. And I think a really interesting case is Patti Smith um, doing Because the Night, which is a Springsteen song, to bring it back to Springsteen. And you can listen to that, and it's absolutely, it's absolutely... Apart from Moose's cover of Because the Night Just Then, which is now the definitive version of the song, that is Patti Smith's song. She's made it her own. It's unbelievable. It's one of my favourite, favourite songs. But you listen to it, and it's undeniably a Springsteen pen track. Like, I mean, the, the way it's put together and even the instrumentation on the Patti Smith version is just... it sounds like Springsteen, the way it builds and the chorus that's just bang, it's like it's salt, you know. Well, I promise we'll bring this back to Springsteen in a moment, but definitive cover versions that have surpassed the original. Ooh. So we've mentioned Because the Night, Patti Smith. I mentioned Let's Spend the Night Together, the Bowie cover before, and that surpassed the original for me. A really popular one is Jeff Buckley's Hallelujah. I and mean, another obvious example is All Along the Watchtower. I mean, even Bob Dylan has said that was... Yeah, that's Jimmy's song now. An Australian equivalent, I guess, to Hallelujah in some ways is maybe Sarah Blasco's version of Flame Trees. To yeah. me, that has... I mean, I love the original, but that is an amazing cover. No, yeah, I completely agree on that. That's <laughs> stunning. Speaking of Sarah Blasco, her cover of Xanadu absolutely eclipses the original for me. Mrs. Moose would disagree because she loves Olivia Newton-John Xanadu, but I think that cover of Xanadu off the um, Cinema Blasco kind of bonus record definitely takes the cheesiness out of it, and it's just very cool. I think on Nirvana Unplugged... There was a couple of great covers oh, on there that have almost man, become definitive. Man, well, I think that's what I was going to say. I, gonna I say mean, as much as I love Man Who Sold the World, the original is still pretty cracking. Yeah, the original, the original is stunning, yeah. I do, I do actually prefer the Nirvana version over the Bowie, and I'm a big Bowie fan. There's a lot more cha 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 in the Bowie version. Yeah. There is lots of cha cha cha. Yeah. In terms of, I mean, in terms of that cover too, where did you sleep last night? There's not. 
really a more poetic exit in rock, is there? Really. And I promise I'll bring this back to definitive covers, and then Aaron will bring it back to Bruce Springsteen. But where did you sleep last night? I slept at Tim's, actually. Really? Yeah. Yeah. It was really good. I passed out in the spare room, and then apparently I got picked up by Mrs. Mrs. Schnitzel and Tim's Mrs., because somehow I'd gotten out of bed and gone into the office and laid down on the ground and gone to sleep in there. Back to covers, so um, Pointy can bring it back to Springsteen. You're wearing a Springsteen shirt, actually. I am. I, I did. didn't realise that. I did so, speaking of covers, there's a shirt that's covering your body. <laughs> it's perhaps the definitive shirt here. I, you've got a Springsteen shirt from his tour as well. You're always wearing that. I uh, don't know about always, but yes, I... I You're I, always wearing it! Always may be a small overstatement. In a good way, though. But, uh, the proof being that you are not, in fact, wearing it today. But yeah, I do have a Springsteen shirt from the last tour. Uh, my friend Rafe bought it for me very kindly on that tour. And yeah, it's a nice shirt. It was a very nice gift. Yeah. In that case, maybe it's as good a place as any to end the episode. And if you haven't already been to one of the Springsteen shows this tour, you're too late. It's over. It's over. And it's it will, over it will and definitely you... be over by the time this comes out. Yeah. But you're welcome to come to my house and cry about that until he comes back. There'll be a lot of people at your house crying. There will be. That'd be terrifying. That's okay. Well, thank you for being the inaugural guest. I think we should get him back at some point because he's got quite a few loves in music, movies, arts, books. I think he'd be good and, and we've kind of got one in mind for you with another friend of ours who likes some similar things to you. Oh, good. Well, I am I am a loser fanboy for many things. So loser? I'll, I will gladly come back. Cheers. Pesto dip doesn't make a good cheese, but it's not at all. We need more beer, don't we?